0: where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Messy Intersection. I am your host, Diana Rice. I am a registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, and a mom of two. And it has been a minute since I published a new episode of this show that was an unscheduled break. It basically was the breaking point of what happens when you are single-handedly running a private practice and uh, generating lots of free resources, uh, such as this podcast, which is something I certainly love doing. uh, But once in a while, um, especially given that I have ADHD and time management is not my strong suit, something has to take a backseat. And it was this podcast for a little bit. So I hope that you are excited about these new upcoming episodes. I know that I am, and I just wanted to share that going forward, I am going to make a couple of changes to the podcast just to make it more sustainable for me to produce. Basically, instead of a custom intro and outro, like I usually do, I'm going to switch to more boilerplate language right after the musical introduction. So that would just be the same recording of my name and who I am. And, you know, my disclaimer that I can just use over and over again, instead of recording a new one every time. And hopefully that'll save me a little bit of time and I can get new episodes out for you, um, faster that way, because as I've said before, I do really believe in this medium and I don't want the podcast to go anywhere anytime soon. So I have a great episode for you today. Um, My guest is Chacha Miller. She is a registered dietitian specializing in maternal, pediatric, and family nutrition. She has a passion for health equity as her work is focused on bridging the gap in health disparities between historically marginalized communities of color and other races by making nutrition education available, accessible, and easy to understand. And we are going to be talking about a mindset shift from getting your kids to eat vegetables to, you know, setting the stage so that they can explore vegetables on their own time, which I promise is in the best interest of their relationship with food, but it's just a little bit harder for us to wrap our heads around as parents who desperately want healthy kids. But before we dive into that, I just want to share my usual disclaimer, which is that the content on this show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views that I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. With that, let's hear from ChaCha. Hey, ChaCha! Welcome
1: to the Messy Intersection. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited for this talk today. I know it's a really um, it's a really important distinction for parents, but it's also kind of countercultural. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to talk about that. But yeah. um,
1: before we jump in, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my name is Chacha Miller. I am mom to a three-year-old Rain, which is a very interesting (laughs) stage. I'm also a military wife and a registered dietitian. So as a dietitian, my work uh, focuses on moms, Kids and families. So essentially, I am here to help make feeding families easier. I am super passionate about health equity. So a lot of the messaging in my work is really focused on helping bridge the gap in health disparities between historically marginalized communities of color and other races. And I really try to do that by making nutrition education available, accessible, Relatable, which is really important and easy to understand. So, kind of with that in mind, I do work as a WIC clinic manager by day and by night. I run my social media where I share lots of nutrition tips and recipes and helpful advice for feeding babies and toddlers. And then, of course, if you follow me on Instagram, you will know I also share my three year old's latest fashions. She is very fashion forward. So that's always fun. (laughs) I love that. And I just
0: I I love all of that your voice is so needed. And um, I will be sure to put your Instagram in the in the show notes. But it is it's the cardamom, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. It's the cardamom. Love that. And can you in case there's anybody who doesn't know WIC? Can you tell
1: us a little bit about that? Yeah. So WIC stands for women, infants and children. And it is a supplemental nutrition program that helps pregnant, breastfeeding and postpartum women and children up to age five. So from birth all the way up to age five. So we focus on nutrition education, um, supplemental food resources, breastfeeding education. It's a nationwide program. It is like absolutely where my heart is. I, I love, you know, of course, with every government assistance program, there's going to be challenges, but I absolutely love what I do. I love all my participants. And it's really, you know, it's, it's just where my heart lies. Like this is really, you know, passionate work. I'm, I'm very passionate about the work that I do and helping people and serving others. That's amazing. I just love to hear that. I spent a little bit of time at a WIC during my dietetic internship.
0: And it's just, it's a really cool resource. But I know with government agencies, Mm -hmm. it can be really easy to get burned out. And I'm just, I'm so sure that your voice is needed there too. But speaking of pregnant women, you are expecting your second, correct? Yes, yes, I am. <laughs> and you've got a three year old. This is my definition of the messy intersection. Yeah, because your life is changing, your body's changing. You know, your outlook on the world is probably changing. What is that like for you right now?
1: Yeah. So first trimester was definitely a challenge. And that's like putting it very nicely, um, especially in comparison to my first pregnancy, which was a complete dream. Like I didn't even feel pregnant. I just had a belly, which I know is like, you know, not the case for most women. But don't worry, this second pregnancy has made up for that. (laughs) So there was, you know, lots of morning sickness and of course, pure exhaustion. And right now I'm well into the second trimester. And things are becoming more bearable, like physically. But now it's like, okay, the anxiety of the reality that I will soon have two humans. That I'm responsible for is starting to kick in. And I was just telling my husband recently, like, I feel like we are the first people to ever do this. Because I just I, I'm like, how how does anyone have multiple children? This seems impossible. It feels impossible. So that's kind of where I'm at, trying to wrap my head around my my current reality. <laughs> and you know, that's so interesting to me that if you feel like you're the
0: first person to ever do it what does that say about like how much we're supporting each other and what we're sharing about the hardships and things like that versus painting it as all, I know the painting it all, all rosy all the time is what people are kind of over that. Like people pretty much recognize that that isn't it, but like what do we need to be sharing to, to really get the message across that like, yeah, it is hard, but like, Hopefully you will be supported, right? Mm-hmm. Like so you mentioned your husband is military is he going to be
1: around
0: for for the newborn babies? Fingers you know
1: crossed. what, honestly, yeah, fingers crossed because he deployed when my daughter was 4 months and I was just starting grad school and he had actually previously deployed maybe a year Prior to that. So, you know, when my daughter was born, everyone asked the question, like, is he going to deploy anytime soon? And I'm like, oh no, not a chance. And then, you know, this opportunity just popped up out of nowhere. So, theoretically, he will not be going anywhere anytime soon. However, with the military, you really never know. So fingers crossed that he he's able to stick around for a while. (laughs) I will be thinking of you over that. That is definitely um, very important. So
0: let's talk about your family a little bit more. I know from your Instagram that you do um, mostly plant-based for your family.
1: Is that right? Yes. So we observe what I like to call a plant-forward diet, which basically basically just means that we prioritize plans. However, we still give ourselves room and flexibility to enjoy animal products if and when we want to. So while we don't necessarily make it regular practice to cook meat in the home, you know, if we're at a restaurant, and I feel like having a dish with chicken, then I'll have that. And you know, even in the event that we do want to cook meat at home, then we'll totally do that. So uh, a lot of what we eat, though, does end up being vegan or Vegetarian, but we just don't box ourselves in. You know, my husband and I, we do eat fish pretty regularly. My daughter, she typically doesn't, and that is her preference and that is her choice. So if you had to label us as anything, then I guess you would label, you know, me and my husband pescatarian and my daughter vegetarian. But again, I just, I hate using labels because they're so restrictive. So I just call it plant forward we like eating yeah. plants. <laughs>
0: yeah. And tell me, I mean we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about this issue with kids and vegetables. Like tell mm-hmm. me, how does your daughter like to eat plants or not?
1: <laughs> yeah. She so she is definitely a typical toddler. However, I make a habit of preparing her the same foods that we eat. So she is exposed to, you know, plant foods. Often they make up the bulk of her diet since she doesn't eat any meat and, you know, fish is not really her preference. She may have fish every once in a while, but even just this weekend, it was so cute. We went to kind of like this seafood restaurant and we asked her what she wanted and she was like... (laughs) Mommy and daddy like fish and I do not. And it was just like such a, like, I love the way she, you know, asserted her independence and was able to make that statement. And I'm just like, okay, girl, like more power to you. You know, we don't force her to eat anything she doesn't want to eat. But you know, fruits and vegetables and other plant foods are staples in our diet. So she receives them fairly well, the majority of them. But of course, she is three, she has her preferences, she has her taste, she has her days, one day, she will love broccoli, the next day, she will absolutely hate it. So we just focus on continued exposure. And one of the biggest things when it comes to exposing your child to like more fruits and vegetables, I like to prepare them in different ways to show her how they can be enjoyed differently because, you know, maybe she doesn't like steamed broccoli, but maybe she likes roasted broccoli or maybe she likes crunchy broccoli or, you know, maybe she likes it raw. So yeah, we really just try to continue to expose her and let her experience these flavors is kind of at her own pace
0: yeah and it's it's such a subtle shift because I mean especially I think dietitians might even have a harder time with this like we want our kids to eat healthy diet oh my gosh we really really want it (laughs) I know Um, right (laughs) (laughs) yeah But like, we have to kind of put a pin in that. And then, you know, I love everything you're talking about with honoring her preferences, but you know, you still take the effort to try foods in different ways. I guess for parents who are not dieticians, like this pressure to get your kids to eat vegetables is, is huge. It's like, you know, you need a kid who sleeps through the night and is potty trained by 24 months and eats vegetables. And I feel like we're kind of sold various solutions to make all that happen. Like nobody is really saying that it's going to be easy. But if you just do like my method, (laughs) then you can get your kids to eat vegetables. So like, where does this pressure come from? I know you work with a lot of parents in your day job. Like, where does this pressure come from? Because what we're ultimately going to talk
1: about is the getting versus
0: like the letting, right? Mm -hmm. So where does the getting pressure come from?
1: Yeah, so and I actually love the way you kind Of pose that question because it's, I mean, it's such a great question. So Honestly, I really feel like this whole notion comes from diet culture, right? Where, you know, food has been placed into this hierarchy where vegetables are at the top and it's not even just because they are, you know, the healthiest or the most nutrient dense, but really it's that they'll help you control the outward appearance of your body, right? Like, I think that's really where it comes from. Like, vegetables will make you thin. Vegetables will make you look a certain way. So that's what you want to focus on. Other foods will not do that for you. So I I think that's what it's grounded in. You know, like, this is just what diet culture tells us. You're only a good parent if your child eats vegetables because, you know, even though fruit has a lot of the same nutrients, fruit is better. Bad because it has sugar, right? So it's like we have all these messages that are thrown at us that are modified and that are kind of misconstrued. And we have taken that and have internalized it and have twisted it. And somehow we come to this conclusion where it's like, oh, our children must eat vegetables. We have to do whatever we can to get them to eat vegetables. Otherwise we are bad parents. I know. (laughs) I know. And it's, I mean, it's such a deep issue if you think about it. I, I don't think that most of the
0: parents that I interact with are necessarily drawing a straight line from if my kid doesn't eat vegetables, then X, Y, and Z will happen to their body. Like their body will not conform to the societal ideal. Like that's probably in the back of their mind. I I hear a lot of like, you know, oh, I just, you know, I want, I don't want them to get diabetes or, you know, I want to make sure they're getting all they need to grow. And like, that's all there too. But I really wonder how much of this comes from a parent's own history with whatever kinds of diets they've been on. And vegetables are probably always front and center in the diet because they are not very high in calories or fat or anything. Right, right, right.
1: right. Um,
0: and, you know, what uh, kind of experience has the parent had with, if I only liked these more, then this diet would be easier for me right. or, or things things like that. And I, I feel like I don't want to, like – send out a, a blame alarm of like, you want your kids to eat vegetables so they won't be fat, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not mm-hmm. necessarily front and center on everybody's brain. It might be deeper in our subconscious. But I think even if that's not what a parent has first and foremost on their mind, healthism is part of diet culture, right? Like mm-hmm. my kid has to be healthy in order for I mean to to thrive, and you know i don't I don't want to minimize that either like we all want our kids to be healthy right um, but what I want to do is suggest that it might be more multifactorial than eat healthy diet, be healthy child right because <laughs> we gotta we gotta think about the um emotional health as well.
1: there are honestly so many factors that play into health, so it's not it's not just what you're eating because a child could eat all their vegetables and still be, you know, emotionally damaged, or, you know, maybe their bodies just genetically, you know, give them challenges in other ways. So their health is you know, it's it's not linear. It's not like you do one thing, and then this is the result. So I think that's what we're totally forgetting. <laughs> and yeah. that's what we need to think more about.
0: Yeah. And I imagine in, in your work, food access plays a big role here too, right? Or um, just all of the combined issues that a systemic poverty will lead to in terms of health. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if vegetables that wick provides which i know they do right Mm -hmm. if that were like an easy solution to Mm -hmm. long-term health Mm -hmm. i I don't know what you think but like it,
1: it isn't right yeah no absolutely it's it helps Kind of bridge that gap a little or rather put a bandaid over that gap, but it's not the solve. You know, providing individuals with these supplemental benefits can, you know, help sustain them in certain ways, but it's definitely not the solve. As a society, we need to go much, much Deeper, Like we need to really attack the infrastructure from the inside out. There needs to be so much (laughs) that needs to be changed just kind of about the structure of our society and how we allocate resources to really address the issue of food access and food apartheid and things of that nature. Because there really are wholesome communities that, that are suffering because of things that we can fix but I mean it's like it, it's a it's a bureaucracy you know you it's it starts at the top so you can you know do your part at you know as an individual contributor to to aid in the fight for food access but it really it takes all of us is is really you know, the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Do you find
0: that this, you know, eat a healthy diet thing? Uh, I think you mentioned the word band aid. Like, mm-hmm. is that where some of this pressure comes for for parents to make sure that their kids? Eat a healthy diet on the whole, eat vegetables. Is, does it come from what individuals can do in their daily life? Yeah. You know, you can't <laughs> destroy and rebuild the system in one mm-hmm. day all on your own, right? But you can tell your kids to take a bite of broccoli. <laughs> right. Right. You know, so is that is that part of where this pressure comes from?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it as well. But really, I think more than anything, it's that internalized diet culture, little like troll in the back of our minds that's like telling us, you know, what, what to do. Because even like you mentioned, it's like people... You know, of course, people want our children to be healthy, but I don't think people are necessarily thinking like, oh, chronic disease prevention, like that is why I want my child to be healthy. I think people have a very limited understanding of the term health. Like, what does that really mean? Like, if you were to ask the average person, like, okay, what does health mean to you? They probably couldn't give you like a really good definition or really good reason why. It's just like, you know, oh, we want our kids to be healthy. Why? I don't know. They're just supposed to be healthy right? (laughs) So yeah, so I don't know, that's what I would say to that. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's a really important distinction. So what kinds of tactics have you seen parents turn to, in order to, you know, quote, unquote, get their kids, I guess, to be healthy on the whole, but specifically Mm -hmm. to eat vegetables?
1: Yeah, so literally, I've seen so many, you know, the hiding of vegetables, like recently, I've seen these like vegetable capsules that you're supposed to either like blend up into a smoothie or, you know, take or sprinkle over your food or whatever. So, you know, hiding veggies in all sorts of different ways, bribing with other like foods or gifts or rewards. If you eat your broccoli, you can have ice cream afterwards. So, you know, we've all seen that. I've definitely seen parents use guilt or shame like, Oh, your sister ate all of her broccoli. Like, oh, you're not going to eat your broccoli. Guess you won't grow up to be big and strong. Which is, in my opinion, using guilt or shame is by far the worst tactic you could possibly use. Like, I'd rather you bribe your kid and guilt <laughs> them or shame them into eating their veggies because it just causes so causes so many issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a parallel there for how adults feel you know, if their body size isn't what society expects it to be, you know, Mm -hmm. why can't I just eat this diet that would supposedly give me that body size? Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what we are trying to avoid here. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) With our kiddos. Yeah, definitely. Well, Playing into this idea, because it is pretty pervasive on a societal level, Mm -hmm. Um, there was a book that recently came out that basically did not do us any favors (laughs) in terms of fighting this, you know, the foods we prefer are like... I think I used the word toxic, you know, that, that vegetables are basically the only route to health. I will, it was called Just Try One Bite. I will not link to it in the show notes, but I will link to some commentary on it in the show notes. Um, and it had a celebrity author and it was on the Today Show. And I was really surprised that it wasn't just that parents were like, oh, I need this. Like, you know, yeah, like I, this is what I've been trying to say. Like I've been trying to say, if you don't eat your vegetables, you won't be healthy. And here it is in a book. So it must be true. <laughs> but like uh, the critical reception was was really positive mm-hmm.
1: too like
0: what is this all about
1: yeah so <laughs> there's like so many things to unpack here so one like using guilt or shame It becomes so problematic when attempting to encourage children to eat healthy foods or really to do anything for that matter because those negative ideas or those negative associations may start to become things that they internalize and associate with their self worth. Like, I remember as a child. Someone told me once that avocados were fattening. And, you know, I grew up very much in an era where diet culture was pervasive and prevalent. So I associated fat with being bad. And I didn't eat avocados for like a year. (laughs) And I love avocados. So I'm glad that I found myself on the other side of that. But it's like, Think about, you know, if a message as simple as that can, you know, cause a child to not eat something that they enjoy for a year, like, you know, think about what that does long term. So it can lead to so many issues like anxiety around food or food restriction or, you know, disordered eating (laughs) (laughs) or issues with control around certain foods so it kind of just feeds into the whole like hierarchy of foods things in this book you mentioned that they label food as toxic i think one of the lines specifically called, you know, non-vegetables or other foods, toxic waste (laughs) or industrial waste. That's what it was, industrial waste. So yeah, it creates these value associations for kids. Like I'm only good if I eat these foods, but if I eat these other foods over here, then I'm bad. Because when you think about the mind of a child, they have very linear thinking. And then we kind of touched on this before, and I'm not going to get into it because I could really, you know, go down a whole rabbit hole, but the idea of access, you know, what if your family doesn't have access to these healthy foods? Like, what if they can't afford these quote-unquote healthy foods what if they aren't available in your neighborhood or you know who determines what foods are healthy and what foods are unhealthy what if these are unfamiliar foods what if these are not your cultural foods so there are so many questions that are left unanswered and it's like where does that leave you are you unhealthy because these are not things that you eat in your regular diet are you bad because these are foods that your family cannot afford so it's just a really limiting message that is so problematic in a multitude of ways (laughs) and I feel like the general public like I don't know why they couldn't see past that it could be you know the celebrity association I'm I'm unsure but there's so many problems with it
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I guess that is what it is, that we have this sort of one-liner message of eat your vegetables, get your exercise, only have cake on special occasions or or whatever it's going to be. And even, you know, we're talking about kids being black and white thinkers, but there's a level to which as a society, like we're not really thinking past because uh, we've never been taught otherwise, right? We're not thinking past, this is what a healthy diet looks like. And it probably looks like, you know, the my plate from the USDA, yep. <laughs> which looks like a very, it's almost like a, a 1950s, like white family with the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not, I mean... America is so diverse that it's, right. it's, it's harmful to say that that's how everyone should be eating, especially given the food access issue. And instead of... <laughs> really overhauling the food system there, we're just putting messages on the Today Show that you can chase your kids around with broccoli. and yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's not always the guilt and, and pressure to eat. I've seen a lot of parents really take on basically a project of improving their kids eating, getting the kid to eat through... Generally positive tactics, tactics that I would say, as a responsive feeding practitioner, do play a role. But I mean, I'm I'm talking about division of responsibility, prepping foods in lots of different ways, like you're talking about. I'm really curious though, if there is a distinction between, you know, hey, everybody gather around the table, we're having roasted broccoli tonight instead of steamed, and okay, Monday, roasted broccoli. He's okay, he's he. he came close to it but he didn't take a bite so i'm going to try again on wednesday and in the meantime we're going to like like sort of make this getting thing become
1: such a project
0: to the family.
1: Have you seen that at all? Yeah, for sure. And this is like a really good question. I like the way that you're posing it because there are two sides to it. So i think as a parent or as a caregiver, it's super important for you to figure out what works best for you, your child, and your family. Like, should you be obsessive over, you know, really any feeding strategy you choose to use to the point where it creates anxiety over mealtimes? Like, absolutely not. Do not recommend (laughs) one star, zero stars, actually. But, you know, if a fun food pick helps to spark interest for your child in a new food, then, you know, go for it. Or if a star-shaped sandwich makes your child more excited for their PB&J, then, you know, by all means, go for it. You know, I definitely have drawers and cabinets filled with all of that sort of stuff to help pique kids' interest. And, you know, I don't use it every day, but I use it when it makes sense for me. So I think that's the, the line that Parents and caregivers really need to draw, do you need to obsess over it? Absolutely not, but use it as a tool. Keep it in your back pocket. You know, you don't necessarily need to use a food pick with every meal or cut every vegetable into a star shape, but if that is something that may, you know, help your child be interested in something new, then, you know, by all means have at it. So, yeah,
0: I love the way you're putting that in terms of is it helping the child basically feel more comfortable with the mm-hmm. food mm-hmm. versus is it helping the child adhere to the parent's agenda of eating a lot of the food that we want them to
1: eat? Right, <laughs> right. right. That yeah. is subtle. Yeah, it's definitely subtle. And really, it's about just kind of piquing their curiosity and kind of engaging their interest. Like, it's not necessarily about like, oh, look, this, you know, this broccoli has a dinosaur food pick, you love dinosaurs. So now you're going to eat all of the broccoli. But you know, maybe the dinosaur food pick makes you interested in the broccoli, makes you curious about it, makes you want to touch it, or smell it or ask questions about it, you know, none of these strategies are guaranteed because every child is different. You know, some children have sensory issues, which may make feeding a little bit more challenging. Um, Some some kids have textural issues, like some kids have taste issues. There, there are so many things that impact how you feed your child. So really the goal is to get them interested enough to want to explore on their own or at their own pace or make them comfortable with this food so that they they do want to explore and that they do want to, you know, kind of feel it out a little bit more. So that's that's really the goal. Interest, curiosity, you know, question asking, all of that.
0: Yeah. And in their own Way. I love that you brought up whether it's sensory or, or taste preferences. Um, I see a lot of kids with, I don't even want to call them challenges. Like I see a lot of kids who have uh, a different sensory profile, different taste profile in my private practice. And the distinction I try to work with parents on is we're not really trying to get them to conform to a typical eater's palate. Right, We are trying to facilitate what it is like to eat with the things that make your child unique. And so if bitter tastes like broccoli or whatever are, are not pleasing to your kid, like the nutrients that are in broccoli are found in other things.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: And so it's not necessarily about having an outcome of 30 exposures with fun dinosaur picks, And then your kid will eat broccoli versus like, Hey, it seems like a lot of the foods that this kid um, doesn't prefer have this kind of taste. You know, maybe that's part of your kid's taste preferences. How can we meet their nutrition needs through the things that they do like, or same with sensory, right? You know, how can we cook it in a way that is going to be, you know, more accommodating to them? Because that's the whole thing is is honoring their individuality, and that's kind of where we get into trouble, you know, with adults and wanting to conform to body sizes or a specific version of what a healthy diet is, is that we're not leaving any room for anybody's, you know, individual <laughs> needs and preferences here. And yeah, um, that oh, man, does that that just is not cool. It's not yeah, cool.
1: <laughs> I love the way you framed that, though. And I say this all the time. Not everyone has to like everything. Like, as mm-hmm. adults, do we like every single fruit, vegetable, food in general? No, we all have our own tastes and preferences. So our children are allowed to have their own tastes and preferences as well. If they don't like broccoli, fine. They don't like broccoli. Maybe they like Brussels sprouts. Maybe they like kale. Maybe they like something completely different. Maybe they don't like any green vegetables, but they really Really enjoy mangoes and they really enjoy, I don't know, whatever else, but they don't necessarily have to like these things in order to reach the goal of a well-rounded, healthy diet. So that's that's really the thing of it. I feel like we get so obsessive as parents over. You know certain fruits and certain vegetables. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there are a multitude of options for us to choose from, like you said, that provide the same nutrients. (laughs) So our (laughs) options are not limited. It's really about working with the child to figure out what it is they enjoy, and how it is they enjoy Mm -hmm. it. So yeah, yeah. And I mean, I love that. But at the same time, I want to hold space for the parent who's
0: probably pregnant with a toddler. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> are you telling me <laughs> that I got to get out the star cutters and, you know, <laughs> all these other things when I really just want to slap some baby carrots on the table and call yeah. it a day, <laughs> you know? Yeah. How, do, how do we hold space for the parent in this position?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I would say do your best. Like honestly, if there are other challenges that are presenting themselves in your life do what you can. Your kid uh, won't touch carrots, but maybe they like corn, give them the corn. <laughs> as long as they are not falling off of the growth chart, as long as you know you speak with their primary care and they are meeting their nutritional needs, um, just in general, across the board, there's seasons for everything. So if you are in a season of your life where you know getting food on the table, including all of this this extreme variety is not plausible do what you can do what is within the scope of your ability because if you try to extend yourself beyond that it's going to be bad for everyone at the end of the day your child having food, your child being nourished in whatever way you can achieve at that moment in time, that is always going to be best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And when you were mentioning the growth charts, it occurred to me, you know, (laughs) vegetable intake, if if a child is low on the growth charts, vegetable intake is not what we're focusing on. Right. (laughs) We want protein, calories, fat. (laughs) Right. So (laughs) true. So, so true. And I think um, we forget that whether it's, you know, bread, is fortified with B vitamins, or maybe meat or beans have iron, like nutrients exist in uh, non-vegetable foods, basically. And those are going to be the foods that, you know, provide the basis of your kid's diet, it's almost like the vegetables are gravy, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, on top of that, it's a little higher. I mean, I, I don't like food hierarchies, but like, let's get the basics in and mm-hmm. layer the fruits and vegetables, you know,
1: kind of on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. People always obsessed over their, their you know, carb crazy kids. They're mm-hmm. like, you know, all they eat is bread and pasta. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're, you know, getting good protein. They're getting good mm-hmm. iron from all of these things. So these things are not bad. They're beneficial. Mm-hmm and their children. They need energy. (laughs) Things are important. I've seen a couple cases in my practice
0: where when the kid was not staying on their growth curve, it actually was related to a carbohydrate intake that was too low because Mm -hmm. the parents are we get this message I don't blame the parents we get this message protein 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, you know there's only so much I call it stomach real estate right like Mm -hmm. protein is very filling and it tends to be paired with fat foods like in a meat or something like that and so that's very filling and then we don't have room for the carbohydrates, so the parents aren't offering them because we've all learned to be so scared of them. Right. Uh, then you know that's sometimes why we see um, these changes in expected growth, which is.
1: Kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it can yeah. be scary for a parent. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um,
0: you have on your social media, um, you use mindset shifts, you had one specific to this topic.
1: Can you describe what that mindset shift is? Because I feel like that's a good like little bite sized thing for parents to take away here. Yeah, for sure. So I try to focus on, I call them mealtime mindset shifts. And I think they're so important because oftentimes the thing getting in the way of our children becoming more competent and more adventurous eaters is us which we don't realize. We think it's them. Something's wrong with our children. They won't eat their vegetables. But really, sometimes it just takes like a slight modification of our behaviors and the way we are looking at things to, you know, create these environments that are better for our children in terms of giving them the space to explore at their own pace and to, you know, experience these different foods and these different textures in a way that is comfortable for them. So when it comes to like, quote unquote, getting our kids to eat vegetables. I think we we just need to completely change that narrative and we need to change the goal. And I think a lot of us use the term get Pretty casually and you know, without any malintent. I know I've definitely created content in the past that you know is talking about getting your kid to eat vegetables, but you have to think about it like this. So getting your child to eat their vegetables or you know, whatever else is a short-term win. So you may get them to eat their broccoli by promising them ice cream afterwards, but then like what did they learn? from that experience. They basically learned that ice cream is good. That's, you know, that's the goal. That's what I'm going for. And broccoli is bad. Broccoli is the consequence. I need to eat my broccoli in order to get the ice cream. So they didn't necessarily learn how to independently enjoy broccoli outside of the context of a reward. So instead, you know, when it comes to this specific topic, I really just encourage parents to provide their children with tools to help them feel more confident and more comfortable exploring vegetables or whatever other new food really just at their own pace and in organic and natural and a way that just feels generally comfortable for them. And there's several things you can do. I think the most important one is providing your child with a safe, pressure-free environment where they don't feel any sort of hesitancy or fear about experiencing or choosing not to experience a new food. Because I remember growing up, you know... Not that there would be like a physical punishment, but it's like there would be a consequence if we didn't eat our vegetables. So it's like, how is that facilitating a... Positive environment where I want to eat my vegetables. I basically am forced to eat my vegetables because I know I'm going to get a privilege taken away from me. So that disrupts so many things. It disrupts trust with my body. It, you know, disrupts the environment at the table. It makes it for, you know, a really just negative environment, an uncomfortable environment where how am I supposed to explore these foods at my own pace or in a way that feels comfortable? With me when I feel just so inherently uncomfortable, mm. so that's really the first thing. Safe environment <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is the big one. Yeah. Um,
0: well, actually, I, I work with when I work with families, we look at the the higher. I feel like I've used the word hierarchy a bunch of times. <laughs> so we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and down at the bottom is safety, food, shelter, like enough food, shelter, not going to you know lose the roof over your head, basically, right? And parents are often they're like. But- you know, my kid has a home, you know, I provide food, right? But putting ourselves into this little tiny mind who doesn't know all the things about the world, we we use the term felt safety. Does the kid feel safe? Or do they feel like they're going to be asked or made to do something that makes them uncomfortable? And if so, then they might not be feeling safe. And we can't achieve nirvana or whatever, you know, if,
1: <laughs> if we don't feel that. Yeah. So what else? Yeah. So aside from that, another strategy is providing them with language to really understand what they are experiencing. You know, is it sour? Is it mushy? Is it sweet? Is it spicy? I feel like it can be empowering just to have the. Ability to be able to verbalize why you do or do not enjoy a food. Because imagine if you ate something that you didn't enjoy, but you couldn't necessarily communicate why. That's kind of scary because if you come across another food that maybe has these same properties, you're not going to be able to communicate to someone, you know, oh, this is why I don't like these types of foods because they are. Just generally spicy or they are generally sour. And I have learned that that is not a preference of mine. So having that language can give a child the confidence they need to say, oh, no, this one is sour. I don't really prefer sour foods. I don't really enjoy sour foods. So while I may try it, I'm going to let you know, or I'm going to have the ability to let you know that this is why I don't enjoy it, or this is something that I'm still learning to like. So I think that alone, really equipping them with that language is super, super important. And you can do that by, you know, asking them about their favorite foods that they are already open to. Oh, what what do you like about that apple? Like, do you like the firm texture? Do you like how cold it is? Okay, these are things that that you enjoy. So maybe you want to try another fruit or another vegetable that also has, you know, these similar properties like this is this is close to an apple maybe you want to try this pear this one is a little bit more mushy so providing your child with language and the ability to communicate is really really key
0: and it helps the parent be more responsive as well because that's Mm -hmm. what responsive feeding is is providing food that based on what you know about your kid is going to meet their needs right Mm -hmm. and so if you know that uh, your kid doesn't like sour then maybe if you're making a salad dressing or something you would not choose a lemon based one or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know something about your kid that they've communicated to you, Mm -hmm. um, which is about their taste preferences.
1: Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, another strategy you can use, giving your child the opportunity to explore new foods away from the dinner table. This is like a huge one for me. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love this. You can do this through books or play or even something simple like, you know, I Spy at the Grocery Store. That's like one of our favorite games. My daughter absolutely loves it. So what this does is create a pressure-free environment for learning about new foods. So when they show up at the dinner table, there's some foundation of familiarity and some foundation of comfort. So Books and Play, are those are those are like my my golden children i yeah. absolutely love introducing children to new foods through books and play and it can even be you know danny has actually shared this on her page it can even be you know a google search like let's learn about I don't know, kumquats. I feel like kumquats are kind of an obscure fruit, (laughs) Um, but let's learn about kumquats or plums or, you know, something else. Let's do a Google search on our phone. Most of us have access to a smartphone where, you know, you can literally, the internet is in the palm of your hand. You can show your child pictures. Oh, this is what a plum tree looks like. This is how it's grown. These are the seasons where, you know, they grow the best. This is how you feed a plum tree, which could really help to spark interest and, and spark curiosity. And when it shows up on the table, your child will be like, oh, we learned about this. Mm-hmm. This is what we looked at on your phone. Like how cool. Or maybe they, you know, even if they don't eat it, maybe they'll, you know, oh, like, look at the skin. Like, oh, what does it smell like? Oh, what color is it? So I I think that's a really, really great way to help provide your child with an opportunity to become more comfortable with experiencing new foods.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's Danny from Kid Food Explorers, which I will link to. She's got a whole Instagram full of these different activities you can do with kids. And speaking of books, a bunch of books, As well, that can kind of bring that food exploration narrative into your bedtime routine or like whenever else is away from the table. So that's such a great resource.
1: Yeah, her resources are absolutely incredible. She actually going back to um, learning about descriptive words and using language for food. She has a book, one hundred and one descriptive words for food, with with pictures and all sorts of descriptive words. So we keep that you know pretty close in the kitchen or at the dinner table. We flip through that often so that. Really helps empower my daughter and give her give her some some new words to learn when it comes to describing food so
0: yeah that's awesome. Yeah.
1: Is there anything else you would add? Yeah, so helping your child understand his or her hunger cues and how to listen to their bodies, which is something that I think a lot of us ourselves are still learning to do. I know that is, you know, a continual work in my life. So really helping my child learn to listen to her body, learn what makes her feel safe when exploring new foods. If a child knows that they can trust their body, then that can give them the confidence that they may need to explore a new food when they are ready. You know, this book, Just One Bite, just one bite may be beyond what a child feels they need at that moment. So just one bite, while it seems harmless, it may encourage a child to kind of go against their natural hunger and fullness cues. It may, you know, push them to a limit that is beyond their capacity, that is beyond what makes them comfortable, that is beyond what their body needs. And you really, you know, want to avoid this ideally. So helping them really understand their body's needs and how to listen to their body's hunger and fullness cues that will help them explore new foods when they feel safe and when they feel ready and when the child feels that it's appropriate. And then really outside of that, I think it's so crucial for parents and caregivers to help their children understand that all foods can fit into a normal and healthy and well rounded, balanced diet. Destroying this hierarchy of foods for our future generations <laughs> is really yeah. a key, a key way that we can begin to kind of dismantle pervasive diet culture <laughs> just by giving them that that one little tool that one little tip letting them know that you know pizza and broccoli can coexist in harmony <laughs> yeah yeah
0: and in my case I mean if, if anybody knows me I'm not sending these messages to my kids but my uh, four-year-old is coming home from pre-k and saying I'm gonna eat carrots because carrots are healthy and I'm like well I didn't tell her that so somebody school <laughs> well, definitely did and so I don't I don't dive in with who told you that that's all right no Oh. Mm-hmm. I go, yeah, sure, carrots are healthy. Um so is this pizza. So are those cupcakes, you mm-hmm. know? Like food is healthy because it gives us energy and it nourishes right. us. And I think that that's a really effective way to just neutralize because they're gonna they're gonna hear that carrots are healthy or broccoli is healthy and whatever, you know, if, if they if and when they do hear that cupcakes are unhealthy, I go, that's funny. <laughs> all f- is not all food healthy food is
1: healthy yeah Um, yeah I don't know it's what it's whatever we can do you know because they are going to be getting this message yeah I honestly I'm so fearful of that and Mm -hmm. I there are a lot of RDs out there who have experienced that with their children Mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of saving posts because I know that I'm going to have to experience this or going to have to go through this with my daughter at some point, because we don't use, you know, healthy versus unhealthy in our family. We use very neutral language. We call food what it is. We don't put food on a pedestal. So yeah, I I know I'm going to (laughs) have to deal with that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's (laughs) almost like I would love to just let my kids live in a bubble where they don't encounter that, but it's, it's more important to equip them to, 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 counter it. Right. Like yeah. to be like, that message just doesn't, that's not what I've learned, you know, and mm-hmm. and they will see it on TV or from teachers. But if I feel like if home base, right, like your family is, is really consistent about it. I mean, I don't know if it's the be all and end all, but like, that's
1: what we can do. Right. right. Like That
0: is the tool that we have.
1: Right. Yeah. You yeah. can only control so much.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, speaking of it's, Harder to do that when you're still doing your own work. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would suggest to parents, whether it's like fake it till you make it or like a particular mindset shift that could help parents who are like, but literally cupcakes are not healthy?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting because changing this narrative and changing this message for our children. It really starts with ourselves and it really starts with unlearning things that we have been taught and that can be challenging and that can be really scary, which is why I feel like a lot of parents and caregivers, they just don't. They they know what they know and they continue with that because they, they think, you know, oh, I turned out fine, you know, this messaging is totally okay, which for some people, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. So I think it's about recognizing your own struggles and your own challenges that, you know, you have been through with food and wanting something different or knowing and understanding that there can be something different for your child if you just take a little bit more thoughtful and strategic of an approach. There's a different way to do really everything. So for, for me, you know, I've experienced firsthand some of the damage that diet culture can have on an individual. And I really don't want that for my daughter. And, you know, we don't know if our second child is a boy or a girl, but I don't want that for my second child either. So for me, it's totally worth the effort. So I think you just need to make that choice and you need to you know think big picture and think long term and think about how these tools that you provide your child and how this messaging that you that you impart upon your child can impact them for the rest of their lives so that's really what I
0: would say. And and we do the best we can, right? The, yeah. the whole thing, we do the best we can with what we have. And, mm-hmm. you know, you and I are working on putting some better resources out there. Mm-hmm. But it's not like, you know, people get into this mentality that they've messed their kids up or they're so messed up that, you know, it's, you know, lost cause or, or whatever is going to be too hard, We just do the best that we can.
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, that's literally all you can do.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. But Chacha, I love this conversation. And thank you so much for sharing everything today.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about um, where to find you? Yes. So I am most active on Instagram at it's the cardamom. I would also encourage anyone who is interested in following along with my journey to sign up for my mailing list because I am starting to roll out more blog content and offer more free resources. So you can do that at www.thecardamomnutrition.com. So sign up there. And yeah, otherwise, I'll see you on IG. (laughs) Yeah, I will link to all of that in today's show notes. Thank you so much, Jaja. Thank you for having me. This was awesome.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I hope that you learned something. And if you did, I hope that you will bring it to my free Facebook group, which is called Raising Anti-Diet Kids. You will find it linked in today's show notes. And that is just a great community of other anti-diet parents learning right along with you. Sometimes I'm learning along with everyone as well. uh, And we would love to see you in there. You can also follow along on Instagram at anti-diet kids, where I will be sharing some content to go hand in hand with this podcast topic, which is always fun. And thank you again for tuning in and until next week, embrace the mess.